This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. The last two years have been rough for the relationship between the public and experts, and I see quite a bit of blame to go around on both sides. The experts have made mistakes, they've sometimes been arrogant, they've sought to impose their moral and policy preferences under the guise of expertise. But they've also had a lot of important and correct warnings, warnings members of the public have sometimes ignored because they were inconvenient, or because expertise seemed political, or because charlatans had something more appealing to say, or because the experts had failed to generate the credibility they would desperately need with the public. It's a broken relationship, but it has to be fixed. We need each other. The public needs expert advice, and the experts need the public to trust them if their advice is to ever be useful. So where did that relationship go wrong, and how can we repair it? This week, Tom Nichols is with me to talk about that. Tom is a contributing writer at The Atlantic, and his newsletter there is called Peacefield. Tom is an expert on nuclear weapons, but he's not here to talk about nuclear weapons. He's here to talk about expertise. Tom was ahead of the curve on this rift, and his 2017 book, The Death of Expertise, points to some of the reasons why the public loses trust in experts and what can be done about it. Hi, Tom. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, You also stirred up the internet last weekend with some controversial opinions on James Bond, and uh, maybe we'll get to that later in the show. I also have Lon Chen here with me. Lon has been a policy advisor for several Republican presidential candidates, including Mitt Romney and Marco Rubio. He was a senior official at the Department of Health and Human Services during the George W. Bush administration. And he's currently a Republican candidate himself. He's running for California State Controller. Hi, Lon Hi, Josh. So, Tom, I realize this question is going to sound ridiculously broad, but I, I think we need to start here to frame this conversation. What is expertise? Expertise is authoritative knowledge in a particular subject. Uh, it's not omniscience. In a subject, it's not um, you know the final word in a subject, but it, I think the word we're looking for here is authoritative. And sometimes it's it's relative. I mean, if um, the four of us uh, here are you know on an airplane and only one of us has had a flying lesson, well, and the pilot has a heart attack, um, we know who the expert is. It's whoever had the lesson. But generally, <laughs> it means who who would you ask? To, to solve or settle a dispute where authoritative knowledge is needed. And um, there's a lot of aspects to that. And, you know, we can go into that, but it, it's, it's not just credentialing. It's not just who has a PhD or a, you know, a certificate or something. It's experience, it's peer review and affirmation. It's um, a certain amount of longevity and capability in that field. But it, it is authoritative knowledge. And the, and the quick example I'll give you is if you're Tom Hanks in Castaway and your tooth is rotting out and your choice is to knock your tooth out with a ice skate or to have the very worst dentist who is nonetheless a certified dentist, that dentist is the expert. You will choose that person <laughs> over knocking out your own tooth every time. And that's a, that's a good way to think about expertise. Say, well, not perfect, not always the greatest, but someone who actually has authoritative knowledge in this. And it's certainly better than hitting myself in the mouth with a ice skate. Okay. And so then how do you figure out how to use expertise as an input in a policymaking process? Because I, I, I've, I've seen a few difficulties with that that go even before some things we can talk about as you know, specific ways in which experts didn't do their job the way they were supposed to or specific things politicians did. One is that you know when you have complex problems, and the COVID pandemic being a good example, they, they draw on several different kinds of expertise. And sometimes it's not obvious you know, which expertise you, you need right now. And no one expert has all the relevant areas of expertise. And then on top of that, the expertise is an input 
into a question. Um, but ultimately, you're making decisions about values where, you know, you say, right. well, if we do this, this bad thing will happen. But if we don't do it, this other bad thing will happen. And the experts can give you advice about that. Now, the, the advice, as we'll discuss, might be incorrect, but they, they can tell you that. But it's not up to the expert to figure out what you care about, what's important and what to prioritize. And so how do you, because I, I feel like that's where we've, we've kept getting screwed up over the last few years is we sort of, we don't figure out where the expertise goes and where the decisions of values, where the lay people are go and people sort of keep crossing those lines and and interfering with each other's role. That that's a really great summary, Josh, and it's a really I think that's the most important question. I've been a, an advisor, an expert advisor um, to a U.S. senator, um, you know, but I wasn't the guy voting. Um, I was the guy giving advice, and that advice always included costs and benefits. Um, there would be other people in the room, political advisors or. Um, people, you know, from if we were talking about things like a defense bill, people from the budget or finance side talking about costs and benefits. And I think this is something people don't understand about expertise. They want yes, no answers from experts. And they also want definitive final guidance that is always infallible, much like the people who want their weatherman to say, look, I want to know if it's going to rain, yes or no. Don't tell me it's a probability of rain. I need to know whether I'm, I should carry an umbrella. Well, it depends on how much you care about getting wet. There's a value judgment involved, and experts can't make those value judgments for you. They can tell you what the risks are. They can give you their best estimate about things that might happen, um, but they can't make those decisions for you. And that's why the political system mediates expert opinion. I it, When I wrote The Death of Expertise, people who hadn't read the book kept saying to me, oh, well, you think experts should rule the world. And they didn't read the book. The book says <laughs> experts are the servants of a democracy, not the masters. So, Lonnie, what, what Tom describes there, I, I see both political parties having gone awry in this process in somewhat different ways over the last few years. I mean, it's become very popular with Democrats to say, you know, listen to the experts. But that is at best an, an incomplete description of how to make decisions, because as Tom describes, the experts experts can't tell you what to do. At best, they can tell you what might happen if you do a thing. Um, and so I think that that's, that on the Democratic side, that those questions of values or the fact that those questions of values exist has gotten sort of lost. But then on the Republican side, especially, and it's not only Republicans who do this, but I think it's lately, it's more Republicans than Democrats, basically just sort of tossing aside inconvenient expert assessments and saying, well, you know, there are a bunch of pinheads who trust that. Um, and so rather than saying, you know, the expert says this, but I have a position of values such that, you know, that's that's not worth doing. It's just basically ignoring what the expert has to say um, and then not ending up where you claimed you were going to end up because you disregarded some, some valid advice about what was going to happen. Yeah. And I think it goes one step beyond that even, Josh, in that you see the, the way in which expertise has gotten uh, confused or conflated with partisanship in some cases. So you'll have, you know, uh, Republican experts or conservative experts, and then you'll have progressive experts or Democratic experts. And so that, uh, and by the way, I think the news media has contributed significantly to this challenge we see, which is that, you know, you will see on Fox News, there is a a, a, co a COVID expert, let's put that in quotes, whatever that means. 
And then and then that COVID expert will have a very different view, for example, about what the proper policy interventions are to uh, stop the, the spread of Omicron, for example. And then you'll, you'll, you'll turn on CNN and there'll be an expert, so to speak, saying something completely different. And, and then that whole conversation gets put into the partisan lens when really that's the last lens we want it in, right? When we're thinking about effective public policy interventions to deal with a pandemic, we really don't care whether they come from Republican experts or Democratic experts. We just want them to come from people who know what they're talking about. The other thing I'll say, Josh, that I find very aggravating in this whole conversation is that expertise and I think Tom understands this as well, there's a level of specificity to expertise, okay? So it's just because someone has an MD, it doesn't mean they understand epidemiology. It doesn't mean they understand, you know, why it is that COVID spreads better in certain environments than others. Um, it may be the case, by the way, that they understand very well how to perform an appendectomy. But it may be the case that they know nothing about the spread of COVID, and yet they are held out, that, that expertise is held out in media circles as, as being identical. And I think, so not only do you have the partisanship problem, but you also have the problem where we're losing some measure of nuance when we're thinking about evaluating expertise as well. But I think that's a really hard problem to get right, which I think is why people have, have screwed it up so much. I mean, Lon, he points out some reasons you get divergent expert advice from people holding themselves out as experts, and it can be influenced by partisanship. But you also have areas where, you know, people with genuine expertise disagree with each other about something because there's genuine uncertainty, um, or they come from two different disciplines that are both relevant to the question, and the fact that they come from one angle or another leads them to a different place. And so I think, you know, I'm actually a little more sympathetic than Lon, he is to people leaning on partisanship, which is to say that when when confronted with diverging expert advice, people need some sort of heuristic to try to figure out, you know, do I trust this person over this person? And maybe partisanship is the wrong heuristic. But there's this huge problem that there isn't one thing that's expert opinion, even in one area. You have people with valid claims to expertise who disagree with each other, operating in an environment of uncertainty, and the stakes are high whether you get the, the answers right or wrong. So if we're doing that wrong, what is the right way to do that, Tom? There's two separate things going on here. One, the thing Lonnie's talking about is is a constant problem. And um, it, when I was writing the book, my my friend Lawrence Friedman, who's the most eminent scholar of nuclear stuff, you know, we we've spent many he and I'd spent a lot of time talking about nuclear things, and he said, always beware of the great problem of cross expertise violations. Right. Hmm. Which is, you know, I have a PhD and I know a lot about nuclear weapons. So let me tell you about, um, you know, healthcare. <laughs> but with that said, what I was thinking as Lonnie was talking was, I'm willing to say, look, if you're a medical doctor, your view on COVID is probably more important or better grounded than, the, you know, than Cliff Clavin sitting at the end of the bar right? To say, at least you're a doctor, you understand the basics of infection and pathogens and immune responses. You may not be an epidemiologist, but you're a little smarter than the average bear. Wait, though. I mean, that helps you if you if you pick out two random people to talk to you and one's right. a doctor and one's not. But there's what, there's six or 700,000 working doctors in the United States. If you include retire ones, there's probably about a million. So while, you know, if you pick a random MD, you might get pretty good advice. But if you're looking for an MD to say some particular thing, you can always find someone to True. say whatever it is you want to find them. So if you see an MD on television, I actually don't think that's a particularly useful indicator that that person has useful expertise. They may have been selected for their weird ass opinion. Well, that I think that that helps you um, if you're looking for somebody to do a basic explainer about things like how does disease work. Um, <laughs> but the bigger problem that you get to, Josh, is what happens when experts conflict with each other? Now, normally, what we call expert conflict has another name. It's called science. 
Um, it's called peer review. It's called, you know, collegial discussion about differing views of how to interpret data and events and so on. And I think one thing that that makes me crazy about the way the public approaches expertise is the minute two experts diverge at all about in a professional setting about something, they say, well, see, experts don't know anything at all. No one knows anything. And that frees them to go cherry pick whatever view they happen to like at that moment. So the the partisan heuristic, I think, is a problem because it lacks transparency. But so Lonnie, how do you how do you deal with that sort of problem? Because I mean, you, you've been in a number of these roles with with various political candidates, especially where you have to draw on expertise across disciplines, you may have to evaluate these circumstances where I mean, you know, if, if you're, if you're building a tax plan, you can ask 10 different economists yeah. what the tax plan will do to the economy, you'll get 10 different answers, you have to operate under that uncertainty, um, and draw something out of that conflicting expertise. So how do you how do you deal with that problem? Yeah, so th- the way that I used to deal with it when I was in government and politics more directly, in the advisory sort of advisory role is you'd set up a process, right? You would figure out how to present different points of view in an even-handed way. And you would you would allow, and, and you know, we've talked about this earlier. At the end of the day, expertise does end up coming into the service of uh, of policymaking and of policymakers. And I think the the problem you have, unfortunately, in in too many situations is that you have people who have arrived at the answer before they've looked at at the data, before they've really looked at kind of how everything is laid out. So I have always been a big believer, you know, I, I give people this advice all the time that actually the best policy jobs in Washington are process jobs by far, because what they do is they really enable you to make sure that the, the decision makers are getting access to all of the right information. And you know, you you try and put it in front of them so that they have an opportunity to evaluate it. Uh, and then, you know, from that evaluation comes a decision. I mean, obviously, you're going to have to make a decision based on uh, on conflicting, as you say, there could be conflicting data, there could be conflicting opinions. But the most important thing is that that information is presented in a way that people understand why there are conflicting points of view and where those points of view come from. I want to talk more specifically about COVID because that's obviously been the number one area in which both American policymakers and the American public have been interacting with expertise over the last couple of years in a way that I, I think has often been quite dissatisfying for everyone involved. I mean, I guess first I want to ask either of you because I, I, I've laid out my I I don't reject the experts. There's a lot of expertise that we need here, um, and we've been managing through this process necessarily with you know experts who developed these vaccines and who made often good recommendations about what the public should do to avoid disease. But overall, I'm you know, I'm pretty dissatisfied with the expert community, which I think has often not acquitted itself very well through this process. Do either of you disagree with that? Is the have the experts gotten a bad rap over the last two years? I I think Josh, the the problem in my mind is that the the level of definitiveness is really the challenge here right um it, it would be one thing if things were presented with the relevant bands of uncertainty right so when you're reading you know a, a lot of academic literature and you're and you're you know trying to assess the fairness or unfairness of a conclusion you look at the amount of uncertainty around the conclusion that's drawn right and so someone might draw a conclusion and you recognize the band of uncertainty is massive and therefore you discount their conclusion with COVID and with the mainstreaming, so to speak, of a lot of expertise, we haven't had 
the uncertainty measures around the conclusions that people have drawn. And as a result, every conclusion that the that these that the experts have put forward has has been sort of assessed as if though they came with the same level of uncertainty when in fact we we know that's not the case right we know there's massive uncertainty around some of the things that we've been told and that's okay because covid's a relatively new pathogen we're still learning a lot about it. i mean there's all sorts of reasons why we we we're okay with less certainty but when the when the when the data or when things are presented by people and held out by people without the measure of uncertainty that's what breeds the distrust that's what breeds i think people saying well you said this but now you're saying this and it's like well yeah if you looked at my original estimate it included zero right so it, it's like it went from <laughs> negative three to three and it crossed zero and that's like the classic example in in sort of scientific research of where you're saying well really you didn't conclude anything then right so to not have that uncertainty i think has been um, a, a massive failure on the part of the expert community to not be more clear when they're making and drawing conclusions to say, here is the conclusion, but let me tell you, I'm actually quite uncertain about this. Because as it turns out, that doesn't get you on cable news. That doesn't get you on podcasts. It doesn't get you Twitter clicks. None of that uncertainty stuff gets you any of the attention that I, I, I do think in some cases, some of these experts have wanted. I will um, pile on the experts um, in a moment. But one thing I want to say is I think the part of the expert failure comes from the fact that the public approaches expertise basically at about the level of tantrumy children at this point. And the mistake the experts have made is to try to manage the public like parents because of that. And so <laughs> instead of saying, instead of saying, look, um, this, you know, this house is on fire and we're going to do a bunch of things firefighters do. We're going to shut off the power. We're going to drench everything in water. It's going to suck. We're going to hose down your house, even if you don't need it, because that's what the book says to do just in case. And, you know, when, then when things calm down, we'll kind of figure out what to do next. Um, instead they said things like, uh Oh, we might run out of masks. So, don't wear masks. It's okay. Instead of just coming to the American people and saying, listen, right now we're not sure about this thing. It, we don't know how it's really going to spread. And we need to prioritize masks for healthcare workers. I, I don't know what Fauci should have done because saying anything like that would have immediately, let's all say it together. It would have immediately produced a run on masks. It, it would have produced exactly the sort of idiotic, um, you know, impulse thing that Fauci was trying to avoid. So trying to, man, you know, then then when he says, well, yeah, I was just trying to avoid, and then people say, well, I can't trust you. I think the other moment that experts and, you know, we, I know people on the left hate it when I talk about this, but a huge self-inflicted wound was in the middle of this pandemic with every people being told, you know, not to go to church. Uh, a thousand doctors got together and said, but if you want to go out and have mass demonstrations for George Floyd, go ahead wear masks and wash your hands. It'll probably be okay. Well, I'm sorry, but you know, if you can't sing in a church choir while wearing a mask and washing your hands, then telling 10,000 people they can sing and shout and hold hands and march in the streets really was a, was a message to a lot of people that expertise is a political judgment. And that was, I think, you know, if the experts, and to his credit, by the way, let's Everybody pounds on Fauci. Fauci's the guy who said, look, I'm really worried about this. I don't think it's a good idea. I think, first of all, we're not giving experts enough credit for developing a vaccine in a year, which is amazing. 
Um, yeah. You know, the the experts basically saved us from our own stupidity here. And the experts cannot deal with a public that doesn't want to hear anything but yes or no. But I, th- I think that's that's interesting. So first of all, I, I made a list of my five top my top five beefs with experts during COVID, and the two of you just hit on numbers two, three, and five in your answers. <laughs> so I appreciate your your alignment with me. Um, but I think I, the vaccines are, are a tremendous achievement. But I think it's 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 worth noting vaccines are not a recommendation. Like we've talked a lot about how you know experts have been bad at communicating to the public what they should or shouldn't do, or to or to policymakers about what rules they should or shouldn't impose. The vaccine is a tremendous achievement. Some of, some of the rollout of the vaccine has been very good. Some of it has been really pretty lackluster in certain ways. But I think, you know, I, th- I think it's worth noting that the expert achievement there is not one that the vaccine itself is not one that actually involves communicating it to the public. It is a new tool that is amazing uh, that has been created. But I, I want to talk about what, what Tom was talking about with the Black Lives Matter protests in June of 2020, because I think it was an expert error, but I think it was a somewhat different error than what you described there, which is to say, I think the problem is that in the first place, experts were purporting to tell you whether or not you should go to a protest. And the problem was that people were asking the experts not what will happen if I go to the protest or what is the risk of spread of COVID if I go out and do this thing in public. It's should I do this? And really, that's that goes beyond the role of the expert. The role of the expert is to assess, you know, well, if it's outdoors, is that less risk than if it's indoors? And what if people wear masks? But what if really only 70% of people wear masks? And what if they're shouting? And what if they're not? You can provide an assessment on risk and on relative risk. You know, if the church choir is indoors, that's a plausible reason to think the church choir is a higher risk thing than the Black Lives Matter protest. But basically, the, the, the way this should have worked is it should have been, they should have said something about, this is what we think will happen if you do this, and these are steps that we think you could take to mitigate the risk associated with that, um, but not actually tell people, like, therefore it's okay to go to the protest, or therefore it's not okay. The problem is that for months, experts had already been making those sorts of declarations about other activities, not just saying, you know, like, you know, if you gather with your family indoors, this might happen, saying don't gather with your family. Um, and that's the value judgments that the, the experts smuggled in. This is my beef number five, that basically, you know, you take your expertise and then you layer on top of it a moral judgment and you and you come and together those make a policy and you recommend the policy. Um, but you're not an expert on moral judgment. Um, you have divergent opinions from other people. And in particular, I think we've seen a lot of these areas, the experts are uniformly well to the left of the public as a whole. Uh, on politics and on and on various associated moral questions, and so when they when they do that substitution of their moral of, of their moral judgment, they end up out of whack with where the public would actually be. And so, Lanhi, I think that's really undermined trust. And I th- I think there's a couple of solutions we need. One is I think it would be great if some of these fields were more ideologically and otherwise representative of the public that they're serving. But I also think it's a matter of the experts being a little more humble and trying to remember that they're here to tell people what will happen if they do things, not to tell them what to do. Yeah, I mean, look, I, there's no question it contributes to the overall erosion of of public trust in in expertise more broadly. I, I mean, I yeah, look, I suppose partisan alignment or having people who you know having a more diverse set of ideological perspectives in these fields is a is a wonderful thing to wish for, Josh. I just don't see how that happens in the short run or even in the intermediate or long run because there is some self selection here. Well, I mean, part of why I bring that up is. I think, you know, and I I think a lot of people around the political spectrum think that Scott Gottlieb has been a really exemplary public commentator on COVID over the last two years. And I think it's not a coincidence that he is one of the few people uh, who is right of center, who's an expert Mm -hmm. on these on these on these public health matters, who's commenting on them. I think it's, you know, I think it's just made it made it easier for him to relate to people over a broader swath of the political spectrum than the on average far left people who are who are doing this. Now, I don't know if we can clone 200 Scott Gottliebs in a lab, um, but I, I think it's a demonstration that it's useful to have 
Republicans who are respectful of expertise with deep expert knowledge of their own able to communicate with the public on these things. Uh, can I just give a shout out here? You know, I live in Rhode Island where we have Ashish Jha, the uh, dean of the Brown School of Public Health. And I will tell you, having, you know, I live in Rhode Island, I follow him, I listen to what he says. I don't know what his politics are. And that that's a great compliment. I don't think you need to have political diversity so much as you do to um, a commitment to that kind of scientific method. I, I'll also say that I think one of the most important things that we should do in public policy, and and that we I don't you know I don't think we do enough of anymore. I'm a huge fan of red teaming. I'm a huge fan of every policymaker having somebody in the room whose job is to raise their hand and say, now let me give you all the reasons that I'm going to argue with this as a kind of devil's advocate. And you can call it a devil's advocate politically. I like to call it red teaming from my old Soviet days. And I, and I think that that's really useful to have that for political leaders to turn and say, okay, I get it. This is everybody's recommendation. Now tell me why this is a bad idea. And I don't think we do that enough. I think there are too many echo chambers now. Yeah, we, we definitely don't do that enough. I mean, the, the, the number of policymakers who would even tolerate that conversation is exceedingly small now, which is really depressing. Um, the vast majority, I think, of policymakers just want to hear a conclusion validated. They're not particularly interested in hearing the other side. They're not particularly interested in hearing why they're, they might be wrong. Uh, and, you know, frankly, if they're wrong down the road, they don't have to admit that they're wrong, right? I mean, we've entered this kind of politics now where it's like, okay to have, you know, e either you sort of don't admit that you were ever wrong, or you just kind of pretend that you actually had the right opinion all along and that the thing that happened never really happened. So <laughs> anyway, that's a, that's a different podcast, Josh. But but basically, yes. <laughs> I sort of think, um, yeah, look, I, it would be great if people in the expert field who hold themselves out as expert were willing to provide um, some some form of balance in their in their perspective, where they were able to calibrate based on the, on on you know understanding kind of okay. People will think I'm coming from the right of center perspective. And so here's why I want to make sure that people understand I'm approaching this not from an ideological point of view, but here's what I see in the data and presenting that sort of even handed. There are very few people who do that. And I and I, I think, you know, Scott's certainly one of them who has. I, I think Ashish has done the same. And so I, I I don't know. I you know, what I keep thinking though about you mentioned these sort of Black Lives Matter protests as sort of one of the pivotal moments when uh when expertise kind of lost a little bit of that of that shine, certainly school closures would be another one, mm -hmm. right? If you're thinking about all of the conversation around what's happened, and by the way, this is like an ongoing thing. We are still having these conversations about school closures and we have over the last couple of weeks with this latest wave. And 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 that is one where I where I think uh you know really kind of longer term damage has been done. Uh, both in terms of the policy outcomes, but also in terms of the of the recommendations that went into those outcomes. And I think that's a, that's another area where the public health experts, the epidemiologists, would have benefited from stepping back because they, again, mm -hmm. they can't tell you whether to close schools. They might be able to tell you how a school closure would affect COVID spread in the community. Although I think that uh, some of the assessments that we got on that were, were not actually that good. But it's, you know, the, the, then there's someone else who's an expert on education. And of course, there are lay people who have opinions and, and values about, you know, what their children should be doing all day um, and what, you know, the, the relative importance of, you know, preventing virus spread versus ensuring continuity in education. Those are all values questions and the experts have a role to play there. But I think they could have preserved some of that credibility by being clearer about the, you know, what what the extent of their role is, what what is their job, and it's their, it's not their job to tell you whether the school should be open or not. Right, but the the other piece of it was 
what was the proper trade-off to be evaluating? What was the proper outcome to be evaluating, right? And I don't think anybody stopped and said, for example, there was this, this um, I think it was the WHO that had a study on, on long-term learning loss because of closures during during the pandemic that came out this week, right? Of, of all organizations, the WHO to have to have that one. But but the the interesting piece of it is when we were thinking about school closures in the in the first instant, what was the proper conversation to be having? Was it sort of if we close, what the impact is going to be on the pandemic at this point or on the spread of the virus at this point? There there was very, very little conversation about what the longer term impact was. So now we're getting into this problem of when you're evaluating policy choices, there is always a preference for short-termism over long-termism. And that to me is another challenge we have, which is how do we begin to build more of this long-term thinking into our policy evaluation process, into our policy-making processes, and frankly, into what experts or people who hold themselves out as experts, how they talk about these problems, right? That's something that I really worry about in the long run is, you know, the, the next time we encounter this kind of a challenge, are we going to be so focused on the short term, so myopic that we're not able to see some of the longer term challenges that actually are going to have bigger impacts? I want to go back to another thing that Lon, he cited as, as an issue with expertise during COVID, which has to do with communicating uncertainty, because I agree that's been a huge problem, but I actually, I see a different source of that problem, one that I think reflects worse on the experts, but that also might be easier to fix because you don't have to fix the media or fix the public to get experts to perform better on this, which is that the, the certain aspects of the scientific method approach that they have used around questions like, is there aerosol spread of COVID has just been completely unsuited to this environment where you need as good an answer as possible as soon as possible, um, and where it's not really clear what your null hypothesis should be, which is to say, basically, they have this statistical significance standard, where basically you start with a null hypothesis, and you hold on to that null hypothesis until you can prove, you know, within a 95% confidence interval or something, that the hypothesis should be rejected. The problem is that the hypothesis is often chosen arbitrarily. So like you start with this assumption that there is no aerosol spread and you go around telling people, you know, it's fomites and clean all the surfaces. And this is part of uh, what influenced the mask recommendations because they didn't really think there was this long range aerosol spread. Um, and even as evidence accumulates that, you know, it's pretty likely that there's significant aerosol spread. A lot of the relevant agencies didn't reject their initial position until they were really sure uh, that there was aerosol spread. And so that was just months and months of giving people wrong advice that was causing them to do things that were not useful and that was causing them not to take certain precautions that were useful. I think it's part of why we've had underinvestment in HVAC uh, uh, improvements that I think can actually do a lot to improve air quality and, among other things, uh, reduce the spread of, of COVID. And so I think that, you know, some of those communicating incorrectly about uncertainty, I, some of that is media pressure, like you guys described, but some of it, I think, is just the CDC and certain, you know, academic departments and other parts Parts of the government fundamentally misunderstanding what their job is at this moment um, and not understanding that what they need to be doing is giving us the, you know, the best percentage assessment that's available instead of waiting until they have something that they're really sure of. And in the interim, going with something that was chosen arbitrarily. I mean, you could have started from a null hypothesis that there was aerosol spread and there was not fomite spread. And you would have gotten a completely different set of recommendations, even as the same science rolled in over a period of months. And so I think, th I think that's been really dissatisfying. And I, I don't identify a cultural driver, a media driver, a political driver of that. I think it's just a mistake. And I think it's something we could do differently next time. 
I think you're being on. I think you're being unfair, Josh. I think uh, on this again, you know, part of the this delicate dance that's that's developed between experts and the community is that experts are terrified of the gotcha moment because the minute they're wrong about something, the public will, you know, or segments of the public anyway, jump on them and say, "Aha! We finally caught you. You're you're not as smart as you think you are." This was the first advice I got when I was a young professor, and I think experts need to re-internalize this. It's okay to say, I don't know. The problem is the public blasts you for saying, I don't know. If you, They say, well, then what are we hiring you for? And say, look, these things, it takes time to figure out a new pathogen. Give us a little bit of room here. In the meantime, we're going to suggest things. We're going to change, you know, it's okay to say we're going to change our, our advice over time as we learn more. One of the things that I have found infuriating about this is that people, um, you know, people like me, for example, who said, hey, I'm all, I'm good with close the schools, lock everything down. You know, this is March, 2020. We don't know. And then now I've become, you know, pretty hardcore about enough with the masks. We know how this is done. Get vaccinated, open the schools, get back to life. And people say, you've changed your mind. Yes, that's called learning things. It's okay to change your mind when you learn things. But I wanted to, there was one term that Lonnie used and we kind of blew right by it and a big problem with dealing with the public. Lonnie used the term trade-offs. We have to talk about trade-offs. The minute you use that term, people lose their minds because they say, oh, you're willing to kill children. Your trade-off is, you'll. T well, you know what? We make those decisions every year that we leave the speed limit at a certain level, or we allow people with small children to put in in-ground pools, or when we let people you know, eat cheeseburgers all day long, we, we make trade-offs about what will, level of risk we're willing to accept to live our daily lives. But with COVID, this always triggers the Helen Lovejoy chorus. And if you're not, if you're not <laughs> young and hip enough and you're not part of American culture for 30 years, Helen Lovejoy is the preacher's wife who always steps forward no matter what the issue is and screams, won't someone think of the children? And, and you, you know, it's very hard to get over the Helen Lovejoy chorus to have a rational discussion about, you know, this thing that will cause long-term learning loss and cause depression in children and so on, you know, has a decreasing utility and the trade-off is no longer worth it. The minute you say trade-off, they will absolutely lose their minds. And I'll tell you the other thing about HVAC, and then I'll get off this soapbox, um, <laughs> because I have been bitching about the, uh, I think, I, I've been convinced that for years I've been working in a sick building at a government institution. Um, you know why people will tell you to put on- Do you have Havana syndrome, Tom? Yeah. Um, uh, the minute you say, hey, this could take tens of thousands of dollars, maybe a million dollars to replace the HVAC, they say, well, you know, that recommendation about just putting on some masks and not shaking hands sounds really good now. <laughs> I have questions for both of you about being on both sides of the expert layperson divide. And so obviously none of us are experts on HVAC, for example, and yet we have opinions about, about HVAC. Um, but Lonhi, I mean, you have particular depth in, in healthcare policy, but your portfolio has been quite broad in, in lots of uh, roles that you've had in various places related to the government. Uh, and clearly, you have deeper expertise in some areas than others. So how does, how does your experience as an expert on healthcare policy affect the way that you have conversations about other areas of policy where you might be more reliant on experts? Yeah, it, it, it's hard because um, you get a, a couple different problems. First of all, sometimes people assume that 
you know, you, you, you have reason to opine on everything. And the reality is that really I don't have reason to opine on everything. And so I do like, I try to preface what I say, you know, if it's in an area where I just haven't done a, a lot of work or where I'm not familiar with where the latest kind of research is, I'll just say, listen, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where the latest research is here based on my understanding from four or five years ago. Here's, here's kind of what I think, you know, roughly the right answer is. Um, and, you know, again, I think it comes back to how willing are you to hold yourself out as an expert versus sort of being willing to kind of hedge and calibrate. And some would say it's hedging. I would say it's probably just a good thing to do that people understand. You know, look, where are you spending more of your time? Where's your expertise current? But but this is part of the problem we have is that um, both in the media, where I think there is a desire to find kind of ombudsman experts who can speak to everything from Ukraine to COVID. Uh, that's one problem. But then the other problem is I do think that there are some people out there who would like to be ombudsman uh, spokespeople for all these different issues and don't mind then, you know, being in a position where they comment broadly on all these different things. You know, I, I'm on leave from the Hoover Institution right now, but that is my home institution where I spend a lot of time. And, for, and there's an ethos around Hoover, actually, that you have to be very, very careful whenever you're commenting outside areas that are in your immediate subject matter domain. And for many years, actually, the institution explicitly kind of forbade people from hmm. commenting or really writing extensively in areas beyond what their core expertise was. Now, that the, many of those uh, things have been relaxed because that's just how things are at a lot of institutions. But my basic point is that there's not only a self-policing that should happen, but also our institutions have to be better too, I think, about saying, look, what is and isn't um, not permissible, but what isn't and isn't best practice. And I think, unfortunately, we have fewer and fewer of those arbitrating institutions these days. And so, Tom, how do you, how do you approach this? As I mean, you, you you've come from having a specific area of expertise to being something of a general interest commentator, and and I don't mean that as an insult. I obviously am a general interest commentator, um, but I mean, you know, you, you're talking this weekend about Daniel Craig isn't attractive enough to be James Bond, and you know, doesn't isn't isn't the right kind of English or something. And and you know, I guess I can think of ways that you could have expert opinion on that. You could talk to a psychologist about you know human sexual attraction, or you could talk to a film studio executive about what what moviegoers expect in James Bond. But I mean, obviously, that's something anyone is anyone is qualified to have an opinion about whether Daniel Craig is good looking, even a heterosexual like yourself. Um, <laughs> but I mean, obviously, you're you're commentating on a, a lot of policy issues that are outside your area of expertise. So how do how do you approach that? How do you make sure you're not getting out over your skis in the way that you have criticized a lot of other people for? Well, there's two questions here. When people say stay in your lane they make assumptions about what your lane is. Someone got on me a while back about saying, you know, you talk a lot about local and state government. You really ought to stay in your lane, Russia guy. And in fact, <laughs> I spent two and a half years as a legislative assistant in state government in Massachusetts. I actually know more about working in state government than I do about working in the Senate because I worked there almost three times as long. With that said, I think it's important for people who move into, I'm, you know, I'm leaving my job in the government and I'm no longer going to teach national security stuff um, and, and moving into this kind of general interest journalism. Um, I think that's, there's the difference between saying, look, I'm a guy who writes every week and I hope my opinions, which is all they are, are interesting to you, the reader. I have, a, I have a lot of experience and I have a lot of breadth. I'm a fox rather than a hedgehog, right? I know many things, not really just one thing very deeply. And I'm putting that out there to, to kind of make you think, spur your spur discussion, and hopefully that you'll read and say, 
Tom Nichols has some interesting ideas, even when he pisses me off. That's different than when I put my kind of cloak of expertise on and say, on this subject, I think I actually have a, a, a reason to be taken more seriously or, or with more attention. And that's partly why um, I've written seven books and five of them have been with university presses, which I enjoy working with because they peer review me. That does give you a certain amount of expert room to say, hey, you are putting this in front of an expert community. Um, you know, things that I would write, for example, um, when I wrote some stuff years back for foreign affairs or national interest about foreign policy, I wrote much more from the point of view of, look, this is my area. When I write in the Atlantic about why Jeopardy sucks now, I'm I'm saying that, you know, as someone who played the game, but it's my opinion. And I think people Tom was a five-time Jeopardy champion. I think Tom has I, some actual claim to expertise here. But but you know, let me let me say something to the people listening. It is not a, it's not a gotcha and it's not to shut things down by saying, "Oh, you're not an expert in this, therefore you shouldn't express an opinion at all." And I think people do play that game as well to say, well, I don't like your opinion. And therefore, you know, I, I mark, I even do this in class where I step back and I kind of hold up my hands and I say, this is just my opinion. This is just Tom Nichols talking about what he thinks is good or bad. And then I will kind of step back into now in discussing the Cuban Missile Crisis, my, my views here should be authoritative in terms of the classroom. And I think it's okay to do that. I mean, this notion that experts cannot become general interest commentators um, is wrong. I think where, where the experts cause that problem is when they say, I am an expert on everything. And therefore my opinions, even though I know a lot about nuclear weapons, my opinions on Indian food should be completely, um, you know, <laughs> scientifically accepted. And I think, you know, it's, look, it's okay to have opinions. I'm paid, I'm paid to be interesting. And that's when I'm trying to speak as an expert, I'll tell you. The rest of the time, I'm just trying to be interesting and have a discussion with the reader. Let's leave it there for this week. Tom Nichols is a contributing writer at The Atlantic. His newsletter there is called Peacefield. And if you want to read his fully articulated argument about experts, his book is called The Death of Expertise. Lonnie Chen is a former policy advisor for Republican presidential candidates and a senior official in the George W. Bush administration. He's now running for California State Comptroller. I want to thank you both, Tom and Lonnie. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. And if you would like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful, very serious community. Please consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and newsletter as a paying subscriber. Your subscription directly funds the newsletter and this podcast. Uh, and we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo as in mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week.